Hey, uh, good morning. It's really good for my soul to be with you. If I haven't met you, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, it's my job to love and serve and try to encourage our leadership community as a church. So I get to work with a lot of our different pastors, our lead pastors, our church planters. And in this last season, our elders asked me to step back in and to, uh, and to lead our downtown congregation. And that's been a real joy to me, but it's meant that I haven't been able to travel as much to see your faces. And so just being here today has been a gift to me. You guys have been really kind a couple of you to say thank you for me being here today. Like that's not a sacrifice to get to be with you. It's a joy to get to be with you. And in this last season for me, there's been a lot of spiritual dryness. I don't know if anybody else can resonate with that. Um, like I just don't feel the presence of the Lord like I want to. And today as I was listening to you guys sing and pray those prayers, uh, I felt my soul warmed. And so thanks for that. Thanks for the gift of letting me be here. And thanks for being the kind of church that actually takes the glory of God seriously. So Father, thank you for these men and women. And um, as they've already served me, which is so beautiful, it's such a picture of your body. May I, by your grace, have a moment to serve them. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and teach us and that you would form us. And I pray that we wouldn't just have intellectual questions about suffering and evil, but I pray that those questions would lead us to a deeper longing to know God, to know you, Lord, to not edit you, to not approach the book of Job as another place of confirmation bias to put you in our boxes or to try to litigate against you in our court of law but I pray that you would give us grace to sit under this book and to feel the places that you want to address us and question us. Lord, we thank you that your questioning because of the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus is not an exposing to leave us out in the cold, but you question us to bring us into a house. You ask us hard questions because you want to lead us to a place where we can see you. So help us today, and thanks in particular for all the friends in here that have been away from church for a really long time. Maybe they don't know what they believe. Maybe they would even say that they're not Christians. Um, Lord, would you just bless them today? We're so thankful that they're here, and make us a, a hospitable people to them as they wrestle with doubt and skepticism and pain. So help us today as we open your word. Holy Spirit, we are in deep trouble if you don't help us with the book of Job. So meet us today, we pray, in the name of Jesus. And everybody said... Amen. Hey, so today we're diving into the book of Job, which totally freaks me out. Um, I have actually been a bit petrified, and what's funny and a bit ironic is that I was the guy on our preaching team that tried to talk our lead pastors into us preaching through this book. And I got them on board. They were like, yeah, let's do it. And then as soon as they agreed to it, I felt deep buyer's remorse. Like, what have we committed to? And I felt a little bit in preparing for this intro sermon, I felt a little bit in over my head to such a degree that it was like asking a puppy to build a time machine, right? Because I still don't fully understand this book. And I'm still wrestling with this book. And this book at times is deeply troubling to me and offensive to me and frustrating to me. And yet in the last two weeks, what I found is God's really met me in this book. And I have a lot of faith. So even though I'm freaked out and I get that we're on thin ice when it comes to having this conversation about evil and suffering and the glory of God, for a lot of you, as I said in that prayer, this book can just be another confirmation bias for you where you either reduce God to your religious equation 
or you litigate God, you litigate against God to sort of confirm the places that you're already mad at him. The basic posture has been said for a lot of people that deal with atheism is there is no God and I hate him. <laughs> and so my hope over the next seven weeks as we dive into this book is that you would actually eat this book together that you would show up on Sunday having done some work, that you would read it, that you would talk about it in your discipleship groups, that you would talk about it in community, that you would ingest this book and that you would be mindful of the places where you even find yourself getting offended or questioning or getting angry because it's in those places where God wants to do the deepest work in your life. Um, To that end, I'll recommend a resource. Uh, This is the ESV journaling Bible, which I think is fantastic. Uh, Pro tip, the stuff that's actually written is the one that's inerrant, not the stuff that you write, right? Pro, Pro tip, for those of you that love the Enneagram more than anything in the world, pro tip, it's the stuff over here that's authoritative. Uh, but here's the deal. We want to resource you, even as we get together on Sunday mornings, to not just be a spectator, but to be a participant, to read and to think and to prepare you for a life with God. And so let me say a couple of things as we dive into this. Um, my hope today is not to unpack in depth all of the book of Job. It's to give you some handles so that you can interpret this book with some guide rails that'll protect you. And I wanna say up front that this book is one of the most masterful things that's ever been written. It's been esteemed as one of the greatest pieces of human literature of all time. And that's not all it is, but this book is deep and it's complex, and it's complicated, and it's hard to read, and at times it's really beautiful in a way that wants, that makes you want to cry, and at times it's so tragic and so ugly you want to turn away, and all that's connected to the greatness of this book. It's beautiful, and it's splendid, and it's really timely. It's really timely, and I don't even just mean it's really timely because this is a season of suffering because that's all of human history. Can I get an amen? Like, figuring out what to do with the problems of evil, suffering in a world where we die, that's never gonna go out of style, whether you're in a pandemic or not. But I say that this book is really timely for a different reason. I think this book is really timely because we in this part of the world in particular have a tendency to try to domesticate the living God. We have a tendency to remake the living God in our own image, and to craft a God that might seem a little bit more psychologically beneficial to us, but a God that can't save us. A God made with human hands can't heal you. He can't save you. A God that you invent is a God that can't speak to you. And I think this book is really timely because it reveals to us part of God in his transcendence and glory, listen, that doesn't negate anything that we just talked about for the last four weeks about his fatherhood, but it helps you to bring the intimacy that's ours in Jesus, to feel the warmth of your father, the love of your father, the care of your father, and to hold that intention with the transcendence and the magnificence of God. And what we need as Western Christians and people that are trying to figure out if we believe in Christianity is not a psychologized version of God where you sort of make him in your own image and just use him as a means to an end. What we need, if there is a God, is to see him as he really is. One philosopher put it like this about the world. He said, we don't make the world hold its breath by holding ours. (laughs) 
And I think we could say that about God. We don't make God hold his breath by holding ours. And I think at the end of the day, what really matters is not your opinion about God and my opinion about God. What really matters is if there is a God, can we know him as he is? Can we encounter him? Can we be right with him? Can we hear him? Can we love him? And can we experience the grace and the power of his presence? And to that end, the book of Job is so helpful and it's so powerful. And yet, it's mysterious. In fact, I would say that this book for a lot of us in this room, me included, is gonna create as many questions as it offers answers. This book has frustrated readers for thousands of years. And if you're looking to this book to answer all of your questions about the in particulars of your situation and why you're suffering, you're probably not going to get those answers. And yet there's something more beautiful that this book offers. It does offer some answers and some questions that we get to wrestle with about evil and suffering and death and the world in which we live. But more than anything else, this book invites you to bring your life in its pain and in its joy into the presence of God. It offers you God on his own terms. It leads you to behold Jesus on his own terms. Peter Kreeft is a Catholic philosopher who I really like, and he wrote this about the book of Job. He writes, Job is mystery. A mystery satisfies something in us, but not our reason. The rationalist in us is repelled by Job, just as Job's three rationalist friends were repelled by Job. But something deeper in us is deeply satisfied by Job and is nourished. Job is not like consomme, clear and bright, but like minestrone, dark and thick. It sticks to your ribs. When we read Job, we're like a little child eating its spinach. Open your mouth and close your eyes. Job-like spinach is not sweet tasting, but it puts iron in your blood. And hey, listen, as one of your pastors, I want to serve you to have iron in your blood. Like, I'm not interested in us being the most entertaining church. I'm not even interested in being the most practical church in the world. Like, if what you need is life hacks about how to budget, like, we want to love you, help you, and serve you. But at the end of the day, life hacks don't prepare you for the dark day. And what I know after following Jesus for 20 years is that following Jesus doesn't give you a pass to get out of the valley of the shadow of death. You're gonna suffer and you're gonna grieve. You're gonna lament. You're gonna cry. You're gonna bury people. Injustices are gonna happen to you. You're gonna be tempted to raise your fist at God. You're gonna hear the voice of Job's wife in your ears sometimes that says, curse God and die. And what Job does for you is it gives you some tools to experience those dark nights, not apart from God, but listen, with him, with him with him in your chronic pain, with him in the bad diagnosis, with him in the midst of teenagers that might be walking away from Jesus, with him as your body ages, with him as you see a world that's imperfect and broken where often the wicked flourish and the righteous suffer, with him. And there's nothing more important for us as a church than realizing that the thing we need more than anything else is not a life hack, but it's God. It's God. So with that in mind, let me give you three things to help you read this book. Three things, and then I'll give you a bit of the context as you read this story. 
three things. Number one, how do you read this book? Well, first of all, um, like all books of the Bible, read it on its own terms. Read it on its own terms. And what I mean by that is you have to understand what kind of literature you're reading. The Bible contains different genres of literature. And Job is a part of wisdom literature, and it's written in the form of an epic poem. An epic poem. Now, this matters because you read poetry differently than you read Romans. Both are authoritative. Both are inspired. Both contain clarity. Both are the words of God. And yet when you sit down with the book of Romans, oftentimes the most beneficial thing to do is to take little chunks and to break those little chunks down and to try to wrestle with the meaning of every particular word. And listen, there's a place for that in Job. You need to read it with your brain. But listen, when you read poetry, you have to also read it with your gut. And what happens when you read the poetry of Job, ancient wisdom literature, is that this wise sage of Israel is going to say things to not just get you to think, but to invite your heart to engage and feel. And that matters in reading the story. Read it on its own terms. It's poetry. Secondly, read Job's revelation. So we need to understand the genre of literature, but you have to always keep in mind that this book is God's self-disclosure. And there's all kinds of fascinating characters in the book of Job that we're going to look at. There's obviously Job. We'll talk about him today. There's Satan in this story. We're going to try to wrap our heads around who that character is. There's Job's wife. There's Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who we'll talk about next week. There's this guy named Elihu who is super bizarre. And if you read 10 commentaries, you'll get 10 different takes on who that guy is. And then you have these wonderful characters that we're going to talk about, Behemoth and Leviathan, who are fascinating. And in the midst of all of that drama, listen, because this book is Revelation, what you have to keep in mind is the most important character in this whole book is actually God. This story is about God revealing himself to you. And listen, because God is other, because God is transcendent, because we haven't seen God, God has to take the initiative to reveal himself. And what happens in the book of Job is God is disclosing himself to us. And when you start to encounter God, here's this really interesting paradox that happens. The more you see God, the more you start to see yourself rightly. John Calvin put it like this. Um, John Calvin wrote the Institutes when he was like 27, which makes me want to quit. Here's what he said, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Now listen, don't psychologize that away. That's not self-helpism. What that's saying is the more you rightly see God as he reveals himself, the more you see your need for God. You see your sin, you see your brokenness, you see your value to God. And so as we encounter God in this story, here's what I found really troubling and yet really helpful as I've tried to wrestle with this book. When I read the counsel of Job's wife, which is the counsel of despair, curse God and die, I've seen myself in her advice. I'm ashamed to admit it when I read the accusations of this character called the Satan who accuses God, who tells God that God's way of running the world is not just. I see myself in that. 
I see myself in Job questioning God, in Job's doubt, in Job's fear, in Job's frustration. And what I think you're going to find over the next couple of weeks is that you're going to encounter God in this story, and that's the most important. But as you encounter God, I think you're going to see yourself. I think you're going to see some places where you're sad and you need God. I think you're going to see some places where God's done a work of healing in you and you need to thank God. I think you're going to encounter ways in which God wants to make you a better friend so that you don't say dumb stuff to people that are hurting. (laughs) This book is revelation. It's God speaking to us. And revelation requires that the Holy Spirit has to help us. Amen? We need him to speak to us. So as you read this book, ask for help. Humble yourself and you'll receive help. Now, this leads to the third thing. We're to read this book on its own terms. Read it as revelation. Thirdly, as you read this book, read it as a part of the canon of Scripture, right? It's not disconnected from the rest of the Bible. The Bible's composed of 66 different books written by somewhere around 40 different human authors, writing across various cultures in a few different languages over the span of around 2,000 years. And listen, The thing that's miraculous and crazy about the Bible is in the midst of all of that diversity, it's telling one unified story. The Bible is about God's redemption and reconciliation of all things to himself through his son, which means you don't understand the book of Job by divorcing it from Jesus. You'll understand the book of Job as you read it in light of Jesus. And as it prepares your heart to more fully embrace the person and work of Jesus. It's a part of the whole story. Amen? So, with that in mind, open up your Bible, go to Job chapter 1. I want to give you the context and then a couple of hopes for this sermon series. The context. Let me introduce you to the characters that we meet at the beginning. First of all, we need to meet Job. Two things stand out about Job's introduction. First, Job is blameless. Secondly, Job is great. Look at verse one of chapter one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This is gonna be affirmed three times in the first couple of chapters that Job is blameless. Now listen, that doesn't mean that Job is sinless, but it does mean that Job is one who walks in faith and repentance, it's a way of describing the authenticity of Job's love for God. Job is blameless, meaning Job is one that loves God and fears God. Job is one that honors God by loving people. And what this is telling us at the very beginning is that nothing that happens to Job is happening because Job deserves it. God wants you to see from the very beginning that the accusations of Job's friends are not going to carry water and it's going to lead you to ask deeper and harder questions because Job isn't getting what he's deserving in this story. Job is not suffering because he deserves it. This is not the story of karma or retribution. Something else is happening in the life of Job. Secondly, Not only is Job described as blameless, but he's described as great. Look at verses one, or excuse me, verses two and three. And there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. That's an ancient covenantal marker of blessing, of prosperity. 
Then look at this. God's literally just made it rain livestock on Job. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that the man was the greatest of all the people in the East. Here's what you see at the beginning. The world seems to, in the first three verses, work the way we at least think we want it to work. Good things are happening to a good person. Don't we want the world to be like that? Like, don't you want the righteous to prosper and the wicked to get their just dessert? And when we read the first three verses of this story, we're like, oh man, like that's the way that I would set up the universe. Things are working perfectly. Things are on track. That makes sense to us. But then things get crazy when we're introduced to this heavenly council meeting. Look what happens starting in verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God, that's an Old Testament way of describing angelic beings, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, literally in the Hebrew, the Satan, also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and he said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and he said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand to touch all he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, this is crazy. Here's what we see. At the very beginning, there's this accuser, this Satan, who is questioning Job's motivation for righteousness, but more than questioning Job's motivation for righteousness, the accuser is questioning his perceived way of God running the world. What he's saying is, hey God, um, of course Job loves you, but he doesn't love you for you. He doesn't worship you because you're worthy or because he delights in you. You're simply a means to an end. The way that you run the world creates mercenaries where people will give you lip service and walk in your commandments because they want to get your blessing. Now look what happens next. And I by the way, say Satan's perceived way that God rules the world because what we're going to find in the next few chapters is that things are a lot more complicated and confusing than that. Look what happens now to Job and his devastation in verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians fell upon them and took them with and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another who said, the fire of God fell from heaven. That's poetic language for lightning in a storm. And burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another who said the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, 
there came another and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and it struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. You would think the story would be over. Satan's premise is disproven. Job clearly loves God for God. He's lost everything and he's still worshiping. But it's not over. The devastation continues. Look at chapter two, verse one. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and he said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Hey, listen, in this drama, in the beginning of this book, which is 95% poetry, we have prose. And what the prose is telling us at the very beginning is that there's some problems that we need to wrestle with. The problem of God's justice, God's goodness, and God's sovereignty in a world full of evil and suffering. We're introduced to some objections. We're introduced to Satan's objection, which is, is God right to bless the righteous? Doesn't that just create transactional relationship? Doesn't God blessing the righteous create a world in which you never know if anybody truly loves God? Job's objection is going to be different. We'll see it next week in his lament. Job's objection is the opposite. Is God right to allow the righteous to suffer? That's Job's objection. Like Job never questions God's sovereignty, but he does question God's goodness. Like, are you good? And that leads to our objection. Our objection. When we read this story, you can't help but feel the question, how can God be both good and omnipotent. The great dilemma, like maybe God's all good, but he's not powerful enough to deal with evil. Or maybe God's all powerful and could deal with evil, but he's not good. This book introduces us to those problems and these problems are gonna be explored for the next seven weeks. So here's what I wanna do. Let me give you some hopes as we read this book. Some things to think about. Number one, we're gonna see that God governs the world not by strict justice or simple benevolence, but he governs the world by his wisdom. 
This is wisdom literature. And what we're going to see at the climax of this book is that Job's friends have a simplistic view of God and the way he governs. And Satan has a mistaken and simplistic view of God and how he governs. And what God's going to disclose to Job is that God's wisdom is so far above our ability to wrap our minds around it that it requires a measure of humility where we trust in God's goodness and are able to say, he's doing things I don't understand. The world's not strictly materialistic, running on laws. And the world is not a world in which God is a formula who is handing out retribution the instant that we deserve it. The world is governed by a God who is good and who is wise. Secondly, we're going to see in this story that Satan's sin and death and evil are real, are real. And any attempt to try to magnify the sovereignty of God by belittling the reality of suffering, evil, death, and the demonic doesn't actually magnify the sovereignty of God. What we're going to see is that evil, suffering, and death are real, and we will experience evil, suffering, and death in this world. But listen, what we're going to see is that that doesn't mean that we live in a dualistic world. And what I mean is, it's not that there's the forces of good on God's side and the forces of evil on the devil's side and they're equal powers that are fighting it out and we hope in the end that good comes out on top. What we're gonna see is though Satan is real, though death is real, though evil is real, listen, God truly is sovereign and he's powerful and he's working. And what we're gonna find when we get to this character, Leviathan, is that Leviathan is probably a mythological beast that's the summation of everything that's scary in the natural world and the supernatural world. Leviathan is this composite sketch of like great white sharks and crocodiles and sea monsters and the raging of demonic beings. And what God is gonna say is, hey, if you try to make Leviathan a pet for your girls, it's not gonna go well. You can't stand toe to toe with the scariest things in the universe. You're no match for the grave. You're no match for Satan. You're no match for injustice of this world. Like you can't pierce his scales. You can't put a hook in his mouth. But then God says, but I'm the one that created him and I'm the one that has a hook in his mouth, meaning I'm using him to accomplish the purposes that I have even when you don't understand it. We're gonna see in this story, thirdly, that we can learn with Job to lament with incredible honesty before God. C.S. Lewis once said that prayer is not telling God what you should tell him, it's telling him what's actually inside of you. And what's fascinating is that Job's friends are gonna say some really nice sounding things about God. They're gonna say things that you can find in other parts of the Bible. They're gonna say things that sound orthodox. They're gonna say things that we would wanna tell one another in seasons of suffering. And Job is gonna say some things in lament that sound absolutely crazy. If you had a friend that said the things that Job said in your community group, you would be calling a social worker. True story. And yet we get to the end and here's what's crazy. It's confusing. God rebukes Job's friends for not speaking truly about God and he affirms that Job spoke truly about him. 
How do you reconcile that? What's happening? Well, listen, Job's friends are really good at talking about God, but Job learns in his suffering to talk to God. And maybe the most important thing about us walking through this book together is that you're gonna see in the story of Job a God who's big enough to actually receive your lamentation and to not reject you in it. Listen, becoming a Christian doesn't mean you're not gonna deal with depression. It doesn't mean you'll never have a suicidal thought. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you're not gonna wrestle with anxiety. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you're not gonna get really sad or really lonely. But listen, being a Christian does mean that in the midst of those dark, deep places, God is with you and he's for you and he hears you. And even when you say things to him that don't sound nice and that aren't religious, maybe even when you say things to him that aren't even right about him, God's not going anywhere. You can come to him. Let me give you just a couple more things in closing. As we read this book, it's a good thing to occasionally, and I do mean occasionally, explore your motives for loving God. I say occasionally because you can get on the merry-go-round of self-reflection and never get off. It's been said by one of the old preachers that for every one glance you take at yourself, you should take seven at God. That's probably accurate. Hey, but it is really good to ask the question sometimes, do you follow Jesus because you mistakenly believe that Jesus is a means to an end? Or do you follow Jesus because he's the end? Are you a Christian to get the perfect marriage and family? Or are you a Christian because Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? Are you a Christian in an attempt to bind God to your good deeds so that he's forced to bless you? Or are you a Christian because you've beheld his glory and Jesus has the words of life and there's nowhere else that you could go even when you want to? And we're gonna see, listen, that the answer to our deepest questions about evil and suffering are met only in God himself. It's gonna lead us to Jesus. Because listen, when God finally shows up and speaks with Job, and I say show up, meaning that's the way Job encountered it, because God was even there in the perceived absence. When God finally breaks silence and speaks to Job, he doesn't answer any of Job's questions. It's crazy. He doesn't give Job answers, plural, but God in his presence becomes the answer, capital A, singular for Job. And what we see is at the end of this book, even before Job is restored to prosperity and health, he's satisfied when he encounters God. What we need is God. Let me read one last quote. This is from Peter Kreeft. God will not answer Job because God is not the answer man. He is not the answerer, the responder. He is the initiator, the questioner. He is not second, but first in the beginning. His name, which reveals his essence, is I am, not he is. God exists in the first person singular. He is subject, not object, not even the object of Job's searching and questions. Listen, this book leads us to stand in the presence of God through the finished work of Jesus and realize that what you need even more than the answers to your prayers 
although you can pray them and God cares about those things, what you need more than all those things to get fixed is to know the glory and beauty of God and to be with him and to encounter him and to find your home in him. The greatest apologetic to the world for the truth of the gospel is when Christians go through profound seasons of suffering, loss, and the anxiety of this world, and they start to find that the thing that they needed more than anything, more than food, more than drink, more than healthy bodies, even more than good marriages and obedient kids, what we need more than anything is God himself. And he's come to us in Jesus. Jesus.